Welcome to Marvelous Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings in one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams. We're recording the show on a very big day for Marvel fans on Tuesday, January 22nd, 2019, to be exact, the day that the nominations for the 91st Academy Awards were announced. And you must have seen the news. Very, very short diversion. Because my broadcast career involved having to consume stuff I didn't really care about, Mm-hmm. Academy Awards, Oscars, and all music award shows, I had to watch as part of my job so I could talk about them on the air the next day. So mm-hmm. after I got off the air, I have not watched an Academy Awards, and Oscars, anything since then, and I've been perfectly fine by that. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm okay when the, when the news hits and I find out someone won that I like that movie, I'll go, oh, bravo, mm-hmm. very good, that pleases me. But as far mm-hmm. as the whole horse and pony show, I skip it entirely. Today, special day, the... First time ever, superhero movie received the nomination for Best Picture. To be specific, a Marvel Cinematic Universe film, Black Panther, is one of the eight currently in the running for Hollywood's top award. Black Panther, if you, you want to be entirely truthful here, owes its Best Picture nomination really to The Dark Knight. I don't know if this was before you unplugged from covering the Academy Awards <laughs> and all that, but back in January 2009, when... The nominations for the 81st Academy Award were announced, and Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight didn't receive a nomination for Best Picture, nor was Nolan nominated for Best Director. There was this huge hue and cry, and uh, mind you, the film did pick up eight nominations that year. Most notable, there was the one for Heath Ledger's work as the Joker. Mm -hmm. What was it? He was the only one of two people in all of Hollywood history that are taken home a posthumous Academy Award. I want to say Peter Finch. He won Best Actor back in, I want to say, 77 for his his work in Network, which two months before the Oscars dropped dead of a heart attack in the, the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel. So, yeah. And we all know about Heath Ledger's passing. But, but yeah, Dark Knight had eight nominations, Best Makeup, Best Visual Effects, Cinematography, Art Direction, Sound mixing, sound editing, topics near and dear to your heart, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Yep. And best film editing. And it wound up taking home, too, like we mentioned, the the award for Heath Ledger and best sound editing. But given that Dark Knight had taken in over a billion dollars worldwide, which was almost three times what the film that actually won Best Picture that year, Slumdog Millionaire, took in, mm. there were a number of folks on the board of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences that saw this, that the Academy had was now somehow out of touch with what the modern movie-going audience wanted to see. Right. And it certainly didn't help that uh, the year previous, in 2008, the ratings for the ABC's live broadcast of the Academy Awards had fallen off by 21%. They were just not honoring movies that people were interested in seeing. They were honoring good movies and not popular movies. Is that the distinction that we're trying to say well, without saying it? Uh, It's more to the case of they were honoring serious artistic movies as opposed to the popcorn successes. Right, but I mean, it is the Academy of Arts and Sciences. They should kind of lean a little bit on the artsy-fartsy side, wouldn't you think? Well, yeah. Things that tend to have a more... A little more inspiration behind them besides let's go get some money from a studio Mm -hmm. tend to be those movies that end up 
I think, uh, becoming more popular in the long run. Those uh, ones that maybe didn't hit well in the box office because the audience didn't go out to see them, but boy, did they burn up VHS, DVD, digital download, etc., and make up for it there where it became a cult phenomenon. You know, I've never been offended that a Spider-Man movie never appeared as, as a contender for best motion picture. I never expect it to. But the counter-argument here is if you're listing the most beloved films of all time, you'd have to put It's a Wonderful Life in there. And back in the 40s, they actually used to refer to Frank Capra's output as Capricorn. <laughs> Just, oh, God, another one of these corny films. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it was strictly aimed directly at the public. The same thing with things like The Wizard of Oz, which Louis B. Mayer put that in production because he was looking over at all the money that was rolling in in 37 and 38 over at Disney Studios for Snow White. So there wasn't an artistic bone in Leo, Louis B. Mayer's body. It was like, I want to make money. He made money with a family-friendly fantasy film. We're going to make money. But it's it's based on a book that had the, the inspiration. It, if the movie maker didn't necessarily have it, the book certainly did. Uh, we're talking about L. Frank Baum, the guy who cranked out a book like every 45 minutes, L. Frank Baum? What I was thinking was maybe instead for the Academy, just add a category that says most money made because people have voted with their dollar. If this movie made the most money, the general audience has voted with their 15 bucks or whatever and said this is the best movie of the year popular-wise, generally popcorn shoveling. It doesn't have to have a brain. It doesn't have to be special. It just has to be make the most money. When we're talking award shows, when people are getting dressed up and hiring the limo and going to the Dorothy Chandler, they don't necessarily want to come across as crass. In fact, you know, it's interesting you mentioned this because remember, just this past year, the Academy actually floated the idea mm -hmm. of a best popular movie category right and it got shot down right because yeah. it's like no there has to be some art yeah but that's just adding one category amongst many that are already very art established sound mixing and design and and the photography the cinematography is an art form you can't take away from that category by adding most popular those merits still exist for everyone that takes a, a home a trophy for their particular job whether it be the hair or the the makeup or whatever so I don't see any harm in it. I think the argument here is just that the sense was, at least at the Academy level, the very fact that fewer and fewer people were tuning in to watch the Academy Awards mm -hmm. suggested that the movies that were being nominated didn't touch the larger audience, that it, it they had somehow begun to narrow in on what the critics and the, the film sophisticates were more enthusiastic about. And so that was why, again, in June of 2009, they announced they were going to bump out the best picture category from five slots to 10 slots with the notion that, okay, we do this and that will allow a few popular films to be in there with all of these important artistic films. Right. And in 2010, when this was launched, it actually worked. That was the year that we saw Sandra Bullock's The Blind Side, James Cameron's Avatar and Pixar's Up in the running for best picture. Mind you, Hurt Locker won that year. Very next year, we had Toy Story 3, uh, True Grit, and Inception all got nominated for Best Picture. And, and that year, the King's Speech won, which I would argue was really a popular film rather than an art film. Sadly, in 2012 or thereabouts, while well, you saw something like The Help nominated, mm -hmm. but you then began to watch the Academy kind of slide back to its old ways. And 
I want to say that they didn't nominate 10 pictures that year. They only nominated eight, and they defaulted to something like Tree of Life, which is wonderful to look at, but not terribly entertaining <laughs> to watch. That's Terrence Malick, right? Directed that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, he's known for making the more cerebral, I'm going to put up an image and you have to decipher what it means type of picture. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm kind of in your boat on that one. I, I think they leaned a little bit too far into the uh, let's go extreme art. Before we, we continue down this path, I wanted to sort of double back your slide to the the Academy Awards of, of 2009 because that was the year that the very first Marvel Cinematic Universe movie got an Oscar nomination. It was Iron Man. It was in the best visual effects category. And unfortunately, just like The Dark Knight, which came out that same year, Iron Man lost this category. Uh, the best visual effects award that year went to The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Was Curious Case of Benjamin Button, is there a makeup category? I see here, for example, uh, Batman Returns. Back in March of '93, uh, was it was actually up for the best makeup. So okay, so there would um, so the categories it, it existed at least for 25 years at this point, mm-hmm. and one might argue again, you know, when you look at Danny DeVito in that movie, it's like okay, that definitely deserved a nomination. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know what happens? You know, it, it, that Tim Burton movie winds up losing to Bram Stoker's Dracula, and uh, in fact the. Even the visual effects thing that year didn't go to Batman Returns. That went to Death Becomes Her. The original Batman actually won an Oscar for Best Art Direction in, uh, back in 1990. If you had to pick prior to Black Panther, and again, Black Panther just got seven Academy Award nominations. Okay, if okay. you had to pick a film that prior to this was the biggest in the superhero category, which film got, has had the most wow. nominations or an Academy Award. I'm stumped. Go for it. How do you feel about the Joel Schumacher Batman movies? Oh, God, no. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sorry to break this to you. Really? But it was his first. It was Batman Forever that had, up until this point, the largest number of Academy Award nominations for a superhero movie. It, it had best cinematography, best sound mixing, and best sound editing. Okay, so only three. <laughs> Well, I was scared for a minute, man. It did lose all three categories. Uh, two of those Academy Awards went to Braveheart, and the one for sound mixing went to Apollo 13. And when you think about that film, yeah. I mean, sound was such a huge, important issue with that. Yeah. Anyway, let the Joel Schumacher movies just slide from your memory. <laughs> now we're talking Christopher Nolan, middle 2000s. He's reimagining uh, Batman, yes. so we get Batman Begins. Like you said, cinematography is an art form, and that gets nominated for Best Cinematography, but loses to Memoirs of a Geisha. Very next year, we get Brian Singer. He decides to go another way with Superman Returns. He decides to make it an homage, semi-sequel to the Richard Donner Superman movie. What did we think of that one, by the way? I really liked Brandon Routh a lot as Superman. I think if people tend to gripe about that movie, there's more story complaints more than Mm. Superman portrayal complaints because he didn't imitate anything that was done by Christopher Reeves earlier in the movies, but he sure did embody Christopher Reeves in a way that was very appropriate. It it kept, like, if you wanted to believe there was continuity between those movies and this movie, you could because it had that feel. And when you jump ahead to something like what was done with the most recent Superman movie a few years Mm -hmm. back, 
that was a little bit darker and had a little bit more angst and et cetera, et cetera. And you could not compare that to the Christopher Reeves movie and say that's a direct sequel. That's its own thing. So I like that connective tissue that they tried to keep. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Cool. No, I, I have to agree. I think you, you nailed it. The Brandon Routh and the Christopher Reeve thing, they were both sincere and believable in that role. And that's that's a tough role. So Superman Returns is nominated for Best Visual Effects and ends up losing to Disney. That was the year Pirates of uh, the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. And it was like nobody could get past Davy Jones. And we need to get back to talking about Marvel here. So we talked about Iron Man. And of course, you know, just like Superman Returns, there was an Iron Man 2, 2011. They're having the, the Academy Awards at the Dolby Theater. Unfortunately, Iron Man 2 loses to Inception. But what's kind of cool for Marvel fans is that it's Robert Downey Jr. coming out on stage with Jude Law. They come out on stage together to prevent the uh, Visual Effects Award. And we jump ahead two years now to uh, February 2013, uh, 85th Academy Awards, and now it's Marvel's The Avengers' turn to get nominated for Best Visual Effects. And again, <laughs> it winds up losing to Life of Pi. Now, you got to see that, right? I didn't. I was ah. very, very interested in seeing it. And then I've got such a long list of movies to watch that mm -hmm. eventually some things end up slipping by and I just end up moving on. And years later, I go, oh, I forgot. I was going to watch that and never got around to it. And that's one of those movies. Okay. Same thing here. Okay. <laughs> right. You know, I've seen all the extra features. I've seen the, the wonderful green screen work and, you know, how they did the tiger and all that. And it's like, at some point, I really have to watch this movie. But I did watch the Academy Awards that year. And what was kind of cool about when it came time to present the Visual Effects Award, this time it's not just Robert Downey Jr. out on stage. It's Chris Evans, Samuel Jackson, Jeremy Rayner, Mark Ruffalo. You know, so it's, it's literally Avengers Assemble. Right. But they don't win. <laughs> so... And the Marvel Cinematic Universe losing streak just continues. 2014, that's when Iron Man 3 gets nominated, but it loses to Gravity. 2015, now, first time ever, we have three Marvel movies nominated for Best Visual Effects. We've got X-Men, Days of Future Past, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and Guardians of the Galaxy. And... The theory is because these three Marvel properties split the vote. Marvel fans who worked in the industry didn't know quite which film to get behind. Christopher Nolan's Interstellar takes home the award. Well, that's the first time that they visually or supposedly accurately visually represented a black hole in film. And they actually got a physicist to draw up the models of that. And so for anything... I would say, okay, I'll get behind the Interstellar vote, even though I'm a fan of, you know, Marvel movies. And again, it's because I never expect a superhero movie to win these things, ever, for any reason. But interesting you say that. Guardians that year actually picked up a second Academy Award nomination, and that was for Best Hair or, or Best Makeup and Hairstyling. And when you look at Drax, you know, I mean, Gamora, it's, it's hard to... Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, I could see why that would be in the running, but... But really, if we're talking about 2015 from a superhero point of view, I think the weirdest part is what film took home four of the top awards that year? Birdman. I mean, it took home Best Picture, Best Director, Original Screenplay, Best Cinematographer. And here's this black comedy where Michael Keaton is playing a faded Hollywood actor who's best known for playing a superhero mm -hmm. and who's now trying to mount a thing on Broadway. 
15 months after he signs to play the vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming. I mean, it's just sort of like, it, it's kind of a snake eating its tail. Right. And you have to wonder, did the folks at Marvel, I mean, they're watching the Academy Awards and go, oh, he'd be good for Vulture. Because, you know, the very next year, Brie Larson wins, you know, the Best Actress Award for the role she played in Room. And, and four months after that, Marvel announces out ahead of San Diego Comic-Con that Larson is their top choice for Carol Danvers. You know, there were all these old stories about how Walt Disney used to do this. He'd literally sit at home mm-hmm. and cast out of the TV guide. It's like, well, that Dick Van Dyke guy seems nice. You know, <laughs> let's bring him in. And, you right. know, it's just kind of the notion of, is that what Kevin Feige's doing, sitting there watching the Academy Awards with a yellow legal plant? Like, yep, okay, you know, contact yeah. Michael Keaton. Yeah, he's, he's probably got all of their agents on speed dial, so, like, as soon as the award drops, he just hits send with a little offer with, you know, dollar signs and money bags and <laughs> a superhero symbol after that. And they're like, oh, apparently you got uh, an offer to play the new X-Men. Could be, could be. And we were just talking about makeup and hairstyling, mm-hmm. and... If you think about the number of DC Cinematic Universe films that didn't win any awards, and when you think about all the stories we heard about the, the production difficulties on Suicide Squad and, and the reshoots and all that, that's the movie that finally wins an Oscar. That's the one that gets best makeup and hairstyling. Whereas yeah. just the other night, I was watching Doctor Strange, those amazing scenes where the, the buildings sort of fold in on one another in sort of an Escher coin kind of way. Yeah. And so, of course, it makes sense that that would be nominated for Best Visual Effects. But what does it end up losing to? But uh, John Favreau's Jungle Book, which nobody knows how to describe these things. Because it's like you got a live kid in it appearing alongside of a CG bear and a panther. Is it a remake? Is it a reboot? Is it live action? Is it CG? Aaron, somebody's got to make up a name for this category. If they just say it's live action, because most big movies today, like Transformers, there's nothing Mm -hmm. real about Transformers. That's mostly CG. Like, you know, if you're talking about the actual Transformers cast Mm -hmm. that are not human, there's nothing there but CG. So it's a live action movie. That's the way that we think of it. So in Disney, if they're going to go to a place, an actual mm-hmm. location or a set and film a mm-hmm. human and then add a CG character in alongside of it, that's always kind of qualified as live action as long as we've been adding CG in the movie. I mean, Tron is considered live action, isn't it? And most of that was actually hand animated. It's got very little computer stuff in it. It's more people that were uh, hand drawing over film cells. I'm told that Disney's really fretting this out ahead of John Favreau's version of Lion King. Because again, there are no live actors in this. There's no humans in uh, the Lion King. Did they film any plates like in Africa or anything for it? I have been asking and I've, I've been told that most of the work for this is being done in a building in Burbank. And it's probably not a huge shooting location, like a huge soundstage. It's probably got a lot of computers and networked cables Mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah, okay. Okay, so Jungle Book is a Panther character, so that brings us back to Black Panther. And it's hard not to notice that out of four of the seven categories that Black Panther is nominated in, a production design, costume design, original score, and original song, these four are the exact same categories that Mary Poppins returns has received Academy Award nominations in. 
I was earlier today talking with friends who were at Disney Studios, and there's actually a certain level of concern here. I mean, they understand that Black Panther's an event movie, you know, once-in-a-lifetime kind of a thing, and has some momentum behind it. But the way the Academy Awards work is that, you know, there are these blocks of people who work for Disney or are associated with Disney who can be expected to vote for a Disney film when it comes up for nomination. And in this situation where you have two very high-profile films made by the same studio, the vote will split. And without a, a solid voting block behind one particular film, either Mary Poppins Returns or, or Black Panther, well, that's probably going to allow another film to walk off with the Academy Award in these four categories. And curiously, Black Panther didn't receive a nomination for Best Visual Effects, though three other Disney-produced films, uh, Christopher Robin's Solo Story and Avengers Infinity Wars, did. And if this traditional Disney voting block splits, that probably means either Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One or a Universal Pictures' Neil Armstrong biopic, a First Man is going to take up in the visual effects Oscar. Well, just wait until uh, Disney acquires Fox entirely, because, boy, it's going to get complicated on who they're going to vote for. They just might as well change it to the Academy Awards for Disney-owned companies and spin off their own little award show for just them, and they can fight about which Disney thing made the most money. Was it a Marvel Mm. thing, a Fox thing, a Disney thing proper? And then we can have uh, everybody else Academy Awards where everybody else can try and fight over the scraps. Well, I don't know if I'm quite that cynical, but... <laughs> Was that a cynical attitude? I'm sorry. <laughs> you speak of other Disney-related things we've got on the animation side. What with Incredibles 2 and Ralph Breaks the Internet, both nominated for Best Animated Feature this year. Again, worried about a split, which, as a Marvel fan... That means, you know, it's entirely possible that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is going to take advantage of that and be Sony Pictures Animation first ever Academy Award winner for Best Animated Feature. What's kind of funny is when I talked with folks there today, they were like, oh no, we're worried that because Sony is a major, just like Pixar's a major and Disney's a major, that what if the Academy's in a we-don't-want-to-help-the-big-guys mode? Maybe Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs is going to take home the best animated feature this year. Isle of Dogs was weird. Yes, it was weird, but it's stop-motion, and that means a lot of people are moving tiny little dog amateurs. Oh, or, or I get the, the, the work behind it is enormous. I mean, that's mm. like a labor-of-love type of move yep. to decide to make something stop-motion, and I'm totally for it. I love the actual look of it. But Mm -hmm. just the whole story of it, it was incredibly more Wes Anderson weird than I was expecting. Uh, well. I expect him to be odd, but man, that was a little bit far further than I was was expecting him to go. But as long as people enjoyed it. Those of us who've seen Grand Budapest and all the others understand what you're saying. You know, it's just sort of like, there's out there and then there's out there. Before I forget here, last year at the Academy Awards, first time ever we had... The screenplay for a superhero movie, Logan, was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay and didn't win. It lost to Call Me By Your Name. And of course, last year, once again, we had another Marvel Cinematic Universe movie come up for Best Visual Effects. Uh, That was Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which Ego the Planet, hard to argue that, but it lost to Blade Runner. Which I'm, I'm behind that one as well. I really liked Blade Runner. And I, for some reason, 
just like Blade Runner didn't do well in theaters, but I think that later on, years from now, it'll be one of those things where everyone's like, oh, yeah, I always love Blade Runner 2049. Uh, it's going to be one of those slow build movies. <laughs> well, yes, but let's remember about the original Blade Runner. Yeah, it Blade. didn't do dirt. How many different versions are oh, there there's now? there's four. Four. Oh, okay. I think I've made it through two of them. I, you know, it's, I, I it's worth through. doing the education to go through all four. Otherwise, you're not a true fan. Peer pressure, peer pressure. Mm. Here, smoke this. <laughs> all right. Anyway, to bring this full circle here, folks. So we've talked about five of the nominations for Black Panther, but the, the last two are the ones that are very near and dear to, to Aaron's heart here. And that, of course, is sound editing and sound mixing. And mm -hmm. speaking of sound, you have spent quite the amount of time over the last couple of weeks pulling together a pretty special feature for the show here. One that, that looks at the way music and sound is, is used in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I did, and I discovered a couple of things that I did not expect. We had a discussion about, hey, let's talk about the music. And I was like, yeah, and I started telling you, oh, I'm going to grab music from this and that because they're obviously pulling from this movie. And it turns out they weren't pulling from the movies I thought they were pulling from. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to this, and we'll get into this in greater detail in the second half of the show, but first, quick commercial break. Now, before we get started here, you, you have some other news you want to talk about before we, we get into sound stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. We can't skip the Spider-Man trailer. That just came out on mm -hmm. January 15th. Mm -hmm. And it had new footage, and it had the only thing that I truly, truly cared about. Mysterio's got a fishbowl on his head. I could have turned off the trailer at that point and been 100% satisfied. All I wanted to see was fishbowl head. Really? Yeah, okay. it's, it's a hardcore nerd thing, and I apologize mm. because it's just in my DNA. That's just the mm -hmm. way I'm built. So we'll get to Mysterio. I mm. now have these questions about mm. his character. In the trailer, he puts up his hands. There are some green circles that appear. Uh, no, I'm sorry. They're, they're green triangles, triangle mm -hmm. shapes. And they have a little eye in them because on his lapel type thing that holds his cape on, there are these eye shapes. And it's just part of his costume design. But anyway, the green triangles with the eye in them look very, very much like they are reminiscent of Doctor Strange's orange circles. So I start to wonder, is Mysterio a wizard of some sort? In the comic books, he's a film special effects creator. And all of his magic is actually just special effects wizardry, which I really like because I'm a special effects nerd and I like seeing how things were, were made even as a young kid. So mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why I really like Mysterio is because he did special effects. So I wonder, is he going to be a trickster of sorts where he really doesn't have any powers and this is just all a bunch of hocus pocus show? Mm -hmm. Or because Spider-Man was dealing with Chitari tech that was being transported from Stark Tower, is this some Chitari tech that Jake Gyllenhaal's character is utilizing to have these special powers. What is his deal? How does he get his powers? That's what I want to know. Hmm. And knowing his history, I don't think he's... Because he's being played in the trailer like he's an ally to Spider-Man. And mm -hmm. we all know that just ain't the case. I mean, you can't even pretend that that's going to happen for a second. We know something backstabby is going to happen later on. Yeah, but I have to admit, I love that line from the trailer about you don't want to get involved in this kid. 
And again, I'm a big fan of misdirection. Give me a trailer that spins me in the wrong direction. I'm a happy guy. Right. And I like Jake Gyllenhaal. I don't I want do. him to be a bad guy. Oh, but... no, come on. Nothing's better than a character that you really love, and he's been a great good guy for so many movies, and then they turn in a brilliant villain performance, and you're, like, completely disturbed by it because you just didn't expect that from their character. He could go places with that. Okay, okay. Right. Anyway, right. let me just stay. I'm not going to kind of speculate where they're going to go with the story. Mm-hmm. Those are just the questions I have from, from that mm-hmm. trailer about how they're going to handle Mysterio's character as a fan. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on to that, Happy mm-hmm. and May. What up with that? Yeah. <laughs> Jim, what up with that? Help me out. Is he, no, is, is I, he actually, I, I you know, Again, I, I, the very thing you were talking about earlier, I like moments with characters that i know that kind of rocked me back on my heels and yeah. the notion of a happy and may what are dating are thing i are don't the, know you but... know just sort of how could you not love tom holland's reaction right right and i'm sure there's got to be some awkward tension that they're going to play with mm-hmm. there and I, I just can't wait that's juicy goodness waiting to be plucked at and i can't wait there you go they embrace the classic spider-man theme and mm-hmm. I think that's just wonderful because that is the roots. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That takes you back to when you were a kid. And mm-hmm. music is a special thing. We'll get into more about it later. But I was very, very happy that they wholeheartedly just embraced the Spider-Man theme and, and stuck to it. And then in issue 217 of The Amazing Spider-Man, they've got two characters. One is Hydro-Man, which we've never seen on screen. And the other one is Sandman, which we saw, obviously, in Spider-Man 3, directed by Sam Raimi back in the day. Mm -hmm. And they have these characters in the trailers, and I don't know if they actually referred to them yet in the trailer, but they've been referred to online as the Elementals. Mm -hmm. And we've seen one of them is made of water, Mm -hmm. so I think, well, there's Mm Hydro-Man. And if another one is made of rock and or sand, I would say, well, there's Sandman. So my next question with the trailers is, are we dealing with both Hydro-Man and Sandman as other villains in this movie? And then to go extra deep on the nerd, because of issue number 217 there, it's got Hydro-Man coming at Spider-Man, and then it's got Sandman coming at Spider-Man from a different side, and Spidey's right in the middle, and that's the cover. What happens within the issue is that Spidey, because he's quick, like a spider, mm. uh, he jumps out the way, the two collide, and they create Mudman. Mm. <laughs> and it's it's a rather ridiculous episode, and they just like, hey, let's take these water and sand, put them together, make Mudman for an issue, and see what happens, uh, because we're out of ideas this month. You gotta love the notion of staging a fight in Venice with Hydro-Man. Oh, yeah, with the canals? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of wonderful territory that you can mine just with that simple concept and i'm sure the people at marvel have got some wonderful uh gags in mind and speaking of gags there's a great punchline at the end of the trailer that has adult language there's just a little thumbs up from peter that is pitch perfect to end that trailer on of like yep i'm in on the joke and it's classic and wonderful all all with a simple motion of a thumbs up And then um, the black and red spider suit is loosely based on the Alex Ross Superior Spider-Man costume, which I'm a big, big, big fan of Alex Ross. He's a big, big influence of of what I love about some art in the Marvel Universe. So 
yeah, I'm very, very excited to see more about that costume. Even though it's not a direct representation, it's got some inspiration from that design. And then a simple detail at the very, very end of the trailer, you have a latitude line that kind of goes from New York and you hear a jet sound effect as it heads off and you follow it across the globe to Europe and the, the globe turns. And as the world continues to turn, it, it reveals that that latitude line going across all of these longitude lines on its way to Europe make up the webbing of a web head in a globe. And mm-hmm. it tells the story in a three second animation. Spider-Man goes from New York to Europe. Boom, here we are. Spider-Man time. Yeah. I love that wonderful moment in Raiders where Indy climbs off of the freighter and straps himself to the periscope of the Nazi submarine. And then you just cut to this this graphic of the sub traveling across thousands of miles of open right. sea. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a wonderful storytelling economy. I, it was only later in life I was like, wait a minute, he gets a submarine. It would have to go down, right? That's why we cut to the map, so we don't have to explain that part. <laughs> okay, there we go. All right, so I'm going to shut up now. So I just couldn't be happier with the trailer. I'm, I'm done gushing about it. Uh, I really don't want to go speculating as to what the movie might be. Those are just questions I had that come up as a hardcore nerd when I see those images of, what does this mean? There's so many possibilities. Mm-hmm. So uh, now, from a small dose of a thing, being a trailer to a full whopping season that I had to consume over a 48-hour period, Punisher Season 2 came out on Netflix. So we'll jump into a real brief overview of it. One villain is loosely based on a character called the Mennonite. I had no idea. It was just that this character had so much... I don't want to say gravitas, but he had so much presence that it was like, okay, this just isn't a throwaway character. This is someone from the comics. Who is he? And so we did some digging, and it turns out that he's loosely based on a character called the Mennonite, who wasn't in too many of the comic issues, but that's where they're pulling him from. He's uh, got some religious background, but he is uh, a menace. He's rather terrifying. And when strange people with guns come to you, quote, in the Bible, I don't stick around and find out what the end of the quote is. Probably a good instinct. Okay. (laughs) Uh, We also get the return of Jigsaw. He was created at the end of season one. Frank Castle mushed his face into a bunch of glass in a mirror, and uh, he got all cut up. One note, this is a thing about me with language, because I think Mm -hmm. words are important, and also how we discuss things shapes our society. So they treat this guy like he is horribly disfigured, and he is simply not. There are people who are tragically injured in a much more severe way. And they shouldn't feel ugly. And this dude does not have many, many scars. They're not deep scars. He's not disfigured. He's still a handsome man. You know, he's got enough scars to go, oh, he's, he's seen some battle. He's interesting. He's, he looks like he could back you up. But not, oh, a monster run, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the only thing where I just felt, as our society is always evolving, People like Marvel have usually been on the forefront of the evolutionary change, you know, whether it be uh, race or sexuality or whatever. They engage in those discussions in their shows. So when this dude was like, I'm horribly disfigured, I'm like, nah, you can still get a date, dude. You're fine. (laughs) 
there are real heroes that have been to war that are actually, you know, have got damage and, and they should not feel like they're ugly because this very handsome man says he is, you can't look at him and he's got to wear a mask. I just don't like that, that vibe. So I'm going to say he's a handsome dude and he's got issues. That's what, that's the way I'm going to spin that. So that's Jigsaw. And the reason that he's called Jigsaw is not because of his face. It's because of, he had a mental break during this event. And so he can't remember anything except that there was a skull and it haunts his dreams. And that is a big piece of the return of the costume, so to speak. The skull comes back and when it does, boy, are you ready for it? You can't wait. And when, the, when it's finally revealed, you're ready for a serious, bloody battle. And it's, it's a good time. So mm-hmm. it builds very, very well. There's great, great fights in the first episode, a huge amount of blood and violence. If you don't like to see people disfigured, don't watch it because they change the shape of a lot of people's faces throughout the course of this season. Like, I want to say three people get completely disfigured from punch. And by the way, never get into a fight with someone while at a gym that has a lot of dumbbells and loose weights around. Okay, that's another thing that we're going to take away from Punisher Season 2. Enjoy that episode because, boy, is there a lot of damage done. Yeah, so I'm going to reiterate just one more time. Tremendous amount of blood and violence in this show, which ends up pushing us to the discussion that Marvel is not afraid to go R-rated. They're doing it on Netflix, Mm -hmm. and they could put it into a theater. However, I do think that that's a different mindset, that they are still going to be hesitant to pull that trigger and go full R-rated. They've seen it done with Logan. They've seen it done with Deadpool. They don't need any more evidence They just need the commitment to say, okay, we're finally going to do it. What's going to trigger that is what is the property that actually warrants or what is the story behind that property that actually warrants an R rating? You know, it's interesting you bring this up because when I was doing the research for the Academy Awards stuff today, I was sort of drilling down into which of the X-Men movies had been honored and nominated. And of course, you know, all we had was X-Men Days of Future Past, but they were talking about x2 mm-hmm. and there's the assault on the mansion sequence in that movie yeah and they were talking about when they were taking it to the ratings board and it was just sort of like okay you've got logan finally going full bore in this scene lose the blood yeah no no that's exactly that they, they had to make several rather decisive cuts in order to keep this in the pg pg 13 window because again that's what gets you your largest possible audience but after the first film they were really anxious to finally let logan cut loose and it was just sort of like no we're gonna need a a kinder gentler wolverine here if we're gonna get the rating we want Mm -hmm. yeah so overall in this season two of punisher you've got jigsaw as a villain on one side you've got the mennonite as a villain on the other and you've got frank square in the middle they're not teaming up to take them down they've got both their own separate agendas which is almost kind of a fresh thing because usually it's always a bad guy teaming up with another bad guy and so it was nice to have them coming for two different reasons from two different angles that frank had to deal with separately but at the same time beyond that they also do have a discussion because Marvel is aware vigilantism is not the right thing to do in society. So they do dedicate an episode, not an entire episode, but there is an episode that has a good chunk of it devoted to the discussion of 
vigilantism, good or bad? And then two people discuss their viewpoints about the pros and cons. Mm -hmm. And then during this second season, I was wondering, how can Frank Castle keep being captured by the police with such a high body count behind him? And he keeps getting let go. And there's seriously, spoiler warning, a line that says, well, you just let me go and be what I'm meant to be. And they let him go. So every once in a while, I do enjoy a good violent program. I'm not a bloodthirsty human by any means. Mm -hmm. But when I like to watch entertainment, there's several different varieties of things that you tend to like. And every once in a while, I do like to just watch something like The Punisher that is just mean and gritty and violent and has a lot of blood and has a lot of people getting severely appearing to be severely injured in these massive brawls. And you just cringe and go, oh, man, that's just brutal. But that's the character. That's what he's you know meant to be, a, a wrecking ball that just destroys people they had a punisher video game back in the day where it was just different ways of torturing people seriously it was here's five th different things in the room that you can hurt this guy with to make him give you the information which one looks the most painful <laughs> yeah okay. so it's it's true to the character so that's that on the punisher so now we'll get on to our sound bit before we do the actual Marvel music, we're going to do a quick primer because I'm pretty aware that not everybody in the world is a music major. And I'm not a music major by any circumstances, but I do work with sound a lot. So we'll just cover a couple of basic things overall. When you're dealing with themes, instrumentation is a big role in that. So when you're trying to do something that conveys tension, you can use strings like, you know, a violin, a cello, uh, pianos, and a heavier woodwind, like an oboe or a, a big, big sax or something like that, can make some of those sounds of tension. And you do that by being in a minor key because minor keys are either sad, they make you just feel kind of, ah, Beatles, Hey Jude, and John Lennon's Imagine mm -hmm. are written in a minor key. They just have that kind of melancholy, sad, wistful type of sound to them. So I'm going to play something here that's built primarily of strings and some, there's going to be some brass in it to support it and give it some weight, but this is in a minor key and it's about creating tension. All right. Oh, it was pretty intense. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to do something conversely, and we're going to use our own theme as an example. We're going to, again, it's going to have strings in it, but we're going to have a soaring brass, and this is all going to be in a major key. And when you're dealing with brass, you get a sense of nobility and of power. So we're going to listen to our very own Marvelous Disney theme for just a quick, quick second. That's very noble, don't you think, Jim? Okay, build the cape of the crown. Exactly. Now, yes. we're, we're going to compare this to uh, the Avengers theme that usually rolls over the Marvel tag. Again, starting off with some strings, and we're going to build up into some brass. My goodness, that is powerful, isn't it? 
heroes are coming. When you hear that, heroes are coming. That's what that means. And then we're going to look at, uh, for just another reason that will be apparent in just a second, when you deal with primarily drums, chanting, or something like a, a solo wooden flute, it usually conjures up something tribal, a more primitive culture. So we're going to listen to something like that. That, that puts you out in the woods somewhere, right? Out in a, a jungle somewhere far away, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're going to jump to our Avengers music. And when Jim and I were discussing this earlier, I was like, well, in Avengers Infinity War, when Captain America shows up the very first time, they're using Captain America theme music to you know, show that Cap has arrived. And they're not at all. Really? <laughs> I went through all. I went through Captain America's original soundtrack. That's all March music, because that was back in World War II days. That's where the music lived at that moment in time. So that was a lot of snare drum snapping there, and a lot of brass, and very very marchy, like a parade. And I went, this is definitely not what I'm hearing in Avengers: Infinity War. So then I went through uh, Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Nothing there. And then I went through Captain America Civil War, and it wasn't there. Care to guess where I found it, Jim? Where? It was first in Avengers during the opening when Samuel L. Jackson's getting ready to get on the helicopter and the logo's about to come up in a, in a second. Mm-hmm. And this is that piece from Avengers. We're going to listen very closely to it because what we're going to see here is a construction over time, which we'll find is rather kind of amazing. So this is in the very beginning of Avengers, the first Avengers movie, in like the first five minutes. So we're finding that that's got some percussive beats to it, some some drums mm-hmm. behind it, and some strings that are making the da 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 and then you've got some brass that's rather slow, holding a tone above that, but it's it hasn't fully formed yet. So now, the next time that piece of music appears is at the end when they run the credits. And we're going to listen to just a piece of that because this is the fully formed Avengers theme. So far, it's all the same, but it's about to change here. So you can hear how that brass is so much more present and it's it's a lot it's carrying the music a lot more. And then they go into a disco beat or something. A little techno at the end of that. Um, so that's at the at the end credits of Avengers. And mm-hmm. now, so we can compare, this is what when Cap shows up, let's see, Scarlet Witch and Vision 
are in, I don't remember what country, but they're having their little secret getaway. I want to say Scotland. Was it, was it Scotland? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, they're attacked by the evil aliens from outer space, and then Cap ends up showing up to save the day, and he uh, there's a spear thrown at him, and he captures the spear, and there's a silhouette. We still don't know quite who it is. And as he steps out, this plays. And at that point is where the music takes off and changes from the original Avengers theme and carries on with what's happening on the screen. Mm -hmm. So they're only using a you know a portion of the music, but it is the full Avengers theme. The whole time I was thinking, oh, that was from uh, Captain America Civil War. And no, it was actually in Avengers 1 where that theme comes in. So when Cap shows up, they're using the Avengers theme. I guess that means that the Avengers have arrived even though they're split up. I don't know. I love that you've done this archaeology because you have to have seen all of these movies and know these music cues. With movies, we're talking about a combination of image and music and how the film is cut together. And you're right, that moment in the train station where Scarlet Witch and Vision are sort of have their backs against the wall and this dark figure comes to their rescue. And it's just... It was a wonderful thing to be in an audience and have people realize who that was. And a large of what what made them realize that was the very music that you're talking about here. Yeah, exactly. And what I really discovered in the process, what I in my mind, what I was hoping for was something more like Star Wars. Because mm-hmm. John Williams composed all of Star Wars. So oh, yeah. Hans got a musical motif. Leia's got her own little bit of score. And it all comes into the full overture. In, mm-hmm. in certain little places. And so we can identify a character with just a few musical notes because we've had <laughs> that score for you know, 40 years now. So it's ingrained into like the subculture as well as our subconscious. That music mm-hmm. means a specific person now when I hear that music. And when I went digging through Avengers Infinity War, a good chunk of almost all of the music is original to the movie with the exception of some very small themes that are used very sparingly when a character is introduced for the very first time. And one more example of that very thought is the theme for Wakanda is not on the Infinity War soundtrack. I couldn't find it anywhere, so I pulled it out of the movie and we're going to take a listen to that in a second. And then I was Mm. like, gee, I wonder if they pulled this music from anywhere specific. The obvious first place to look is the Black Panther soundtrack itself. And Mm. in the soundtrack, there is a track called Wakanda. And this is when you're introduced to Wakanda, this music here.
We're hearing a lot of drums. We're hearing some chanting in there that gives you your tribal vibe. But then you've also got the that huge brass soaring on top, which gives it that nobility factor because T'Challa's a king. So now here is the music for when Wakanda is introduced in Infinity War. <laughs> it is the exact same. It doesn't start off with the, the longer intro. It just cuts right to the drums and the horns and the meat of that. So yeah, they lifted directly from the Black Panther movie, that little piece of music specifically for the reintroduction to Wakanda there. And it is important, I feel, because as soon as they show the shot of just black space and maybe a planet, and you hear a 1970s song come on as a soundtrack instead of it being a score, you know Guardians of the Galaxy are about to show up on your screen in three, two, boom, there they are. Mm-hmm. And th- those are the things that I've found about Infinity Wars. It's a very challenging balancing act because you've got themes from Wakanda, which has you know, got some African inspiration in the music. You've got these more traditional themes that you've built for Avengers years ago. And by the way, Alan Silvestri was the composer for the original Avengers, Captain America, the first Avenger, Infinity War, and he's also doing Endgame as well. But he was pulling music, you know, from other people's work because it belonged there. That was mm. what signifies that character. And so I am glad to see some of that continuity throughout the movies. And so as we get ready for Endgame in just a few few short months now, I'm going to be very excited to listen to the score and see how, if you were to take the Avengers theme and play it in a minor key, that's an Avenger getting killed. And you're going to get sad. And you're not going to know why. And it's because you know the Avengers music, but this is just a little bit different. There's like a note or two that aren't hitting the register quite right, and it's going to be a a flat half a step, and you're going to get sad, and you're just not going to know why you're crying a little bit harder than you should be. And and that's going to be because they've they've played that in a different key and made it the sad key. And boy, I just I'm almost afraid for what the music's going to do to me, as well as the visuals, because if there's going to be some heavy sacrifices, the music is going to back it up. Oh, no doubt. I have to tell you, I have been an Alan Silvestri fan since I think the first time he really came on my radar was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And in fact, there's it's so funny, you talk about a minor key and things that make you cry without you knowing, understanding why, there's this wonderful scene in the movie where it's just Eddie Valiant in his office and he's developed photographs of Jessica Rabbit and Marvin Acme. And as he's going through the photos, you know, he's borrowed this camera from Dolores, the woman he used to date. And he then gets these photographs of his brother and he and Dolores at the beach. And there's not a word said in the scene. The camera moves around the desk and you get from the scrapbooks he has on the table and the photographs there, the entire sweep of Eddie's career, but he becomes a full character that you sympathize with, that you're suddenly in his corner in the scene. And honestly, again, Aaron, 99% of the reason you're in his corner is what Alvin, Alan Silvestri did with 
the music in that scene. Right. And the man has a gift for reinforcing the cinematic form. Just no other way to describe it. And you can hear what the three notes that start the Back to the Future theme, and you mm-hmm. know immediately what film world you're in. Right. Well, I think that really great composers think of it as a language because you have a moment where uh, you just mentioned there's no dialogue. It's it's a mm-hmm. shot, and you can't have the really crummy voiceover going, he is sad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And so yeah. they have to express mm-hmm. through music what they think that character should be feeling and really to reinforce that emotion at that moment. And it's such an art form, just like a brush stroke is to a painting. These guys with a, a scribble of a note can create teardrops from a human. And that's a real magical type of art form that sometimes get overlooked when a a general audience goes into a theater and they see a great movie and they go, oh, tremendous action, and oh, I I cried. But then they really don't think about the music that supported those moments that made them cry just a little bit harder than what they would have been had there been no score there to back that moment up. So it's an important component, and I'm glad that we got to take a moment to actually take a deeper look at it as an element of uh, a future film coming up that we're very excited about that doesn't require us speculating as to what's going to happen. You know, it's just take a look at the music, listen a little bit more while you're in the theater and, and soak that up during that moment. Well, thank you again for doing this. I know this, this took a, a lot of work and a lot of searching. Out. I mean, uh, the, just your various quests for chasing down Cap's theme and where you thought you heard it versus where it actually was. Yeah, it was going to be a five-minute search turned out two days later. Ah, oh, it was in Avengers, mm. you sons of guns. Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you again for doing this. this no was, problem. It was great fun, and I'd love going forward if we could circle back on this idea, because again, I just, I have such a love of how music makes you feel things in film. Yeah. In ways that sometimes we really don't understand. And, and as you were referring to, the minor key. Sort mm. of like, I don't know why I need Kleenex right now, but I need Kleenex right now. Anyway, folks, thanks again for listening to Marvelous Disney. And by the way, Aaron is a very busy guy because he edits all of the shows we do here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. So you're, you're editing the Disney Dish Show I do with Len Testa. You're editing the... Looking at Lucasfilm, I do with Dan Z. You're editing the fine-tuning I do with Drew Taylor. Likewise, uh, Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. I have heard every podcast you have ever recorded for almost the last three years. Oh, dear Lord. So, so, so you're going to show up someday and murder me in my bed. That's right, right? Stop talking, you idiot. All right, speaking of stop talking, very long show, though, but thanks for listening, uh, sticking with us tonight, folks. And Aaron and I will be back soon with another Marvelous Disney podcast. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.